0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Some new rules coming into effect, actually, that you may want to know about. Employees in a federally regulated private sector workplace are going to be eligible for 10 days of paid sick leave. As of December 31st, workers who have been continuously employed for at least 30 days will have access to three paid sick leave sick days. This was something that has been a long time coming, but it was talked about back on the campaign trail in 2021 during that federal election campaign that the Liberals at the time had pledged to introduce 10 days of paid sick leave for federally regulated workers. So who gets this? How is this going to work? Joining us now is B. Brusk, President of the Canadian Labour Congress. B, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Do we know how many people does this affect?
1: It's just under a million Canadian workers right across this country that will be impacted by it, and you're right, it will be workers who are in federally regulated workplaces, uh, generally working in the private sector. So folks working in transportation, whether it's air, rail, or uh, trucking, for example, banks, grain elevators, uh, port services, postal and courier services, and radio and television folks will be eligible
0: Okay. And was this a a long time coming in your mind? I mean, it it seems that's a lot of sick leave to finally put into place.
1: It's definitely been a long time coming. And certainly over the last number of years, as we've been working our way through a pandemic, we've seen the importance of having uh, the opportunity for workers to be able to stay at home when they're not feeling well. This is something that the labour movement across Canada has been pushing for uh, very stringently. Over the years, and, you know, your provincial government also enacted five paid days of sick time earlier this year, which we are very happy to hear uh, because we believe all workers should have the right and should have the ability to make the decision to stay at home when they're sick rather than having to worry as to whether or not they're going to be able to pay their mortgage or pay their their rent at the end of the month if they take a sick day.
0: Right. I guess the key here as well, too, is is will people feel secure enough in their job or confident enough to take this sick leave?
1: I certainly hope so, and certainly we will be encouraging all employers to, to ensure that, you know, they speak positively about this. Because at the end of the day, uh, for an employee to stay at home when they're sick means that there is less of a spread of illness coming into the workplace. That also means that when we're dealing with things like influenza and pneumonia and, you know, respiratory illnesses that are clogging up our, our hospital systems right now, um, it, hopefully it'll lessen that burden as well when people feel that they can make that decision to stay at home when ill.
0: Is there also some communication that has to be done with employers here to make sure everybody understands the rules?
1: I think there's always room for education when it comes to employer and employee groups in terms of what the rules are and why they are important and why they should be followed. And so we'll be consistently looking to, uh, you know, various different um, unions, uh, employer groups, government, to ensure that we're all uh, saying the same thing in terms of the priorities and the, the importance of actually following the rules as they're laid out.
0: Okay, so then what are the next steps here? So what's going to happen after December 31st?
1: So the next steps are for us as the Canadian Labour Congress across Canada to, is to push other provincial and territorial governments to also enact sick-time legislation. Um, you folks are fortunate in B.C. to have five paid sick days. Uh, that is the best of any provincial or territorial government, so we're going to be working very hard to continue to push on this issue to not just increase uh, sick days to 10 all 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 across Canada, but just to even get it implemented in uh, the other regions.
0: Okay, so this is across the board, right? Be like, what do people need to know here?
1: What people need to know is if you are in a federally regulated um, workplace, and you can check that out online in terms of uh, which uh, workplaces qualify, uh, then you will have the right as of December 31st to start taking three days of paid sick time. You will earn your fourth day the month thereafter to a maximum of 10 days per year. And uh, you will never get more than 10 days, but you will always have an opportunity to earn uh, those 10 days every single year going forward.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. That's B Brusk, who's president of the Canadian Labour Congress, talking about the rules that are changing for federally regulated private sector workplaces. As of December 31st, you will be entitled to more sick days if that affects you, if you work in one of those workplaces. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. What I wonder, though, is that with the way things are, you know, people, so businesses so short-staffed these days, people getting back to work, Are people feeling the same pressure that they used to feel to come to work sick or has the pandemic changed that? Do you feel more confident to be able to say, you know what, I'm sick today, I'm not coming in. Or do you still feel that kind of obligation to go in even if you're not feeling 100%? This is Mornings with Simi. So we heard the news that the B.C. government is filing an injunction, the Medical Services Commission is, uh, in B.C. Supreme Court against TELUS Health. They are alleging that the company is breaking the rules, the Medicare Protection Act. Now, they're taking this action against TELUS's Life Plus program. And this is something that actually has been around for a while now and concerns have been raised about this. But yesterday we heard the first concrete steps that are being taken in this. And it is a long road ahead to see what's going to change here. We heard about that with Von Palmer for the Vancouver Sun. But let's talk about, you know, the concerns surrounding this issue. The B.C. Green Party originally raised some of these issues back in February of this year. Joining us now is Sonia Fersano, the B.C. Green Party leader, to talk more about it. Thank you for being here.
2: Well, I'm glad to be here, Simi.
0: So you must be relieved that now finally something seems to be getting done?
2: Well, I think it's a, it's a good step to see some action being taken. I'm surprised how long it's taken. I mean, the situation here is that Life Plus has been charging people about $4,000 a year uh, in order to access primary care in this province. And I think we should all be concerned about that.
0: And when did you first start hearing about this or hearing concerns from people? We started hearing about concerns at, you know, at
2: the beginning of this year. And people had reached out to us and pointed out that this was happening, that there was this subscription fee or, you know, monthly fee to access a doctor through LifePlus. And uh, so we started to raise it then with, with the health minister.
0: Okay. And so was it people reaching out to you saying, this is what's happening to me?
2: Yeah, we had some people like that and then others just pointing out that uh they were concerned about this this product, I guess that was being presented as an option for them when they when they called about uh, finding out about uh, finding a doctor.
0: Right. So I know therefore you've been raising this for a long time. Now the government seems to be doing something, but what what do you think could be done here?
2: So I think the important thing to to consider with this is that tell us and other for-profit corporations have been filling some pretty significant gaps that exist in our public health care system. So we have a million people in British Columbia who don't have a doctor, uh, and these companies have found a way to make it possible for you to get access to a doctor, to really you know, get out in front of that crisis. What we need from government, what we've been asking all along uh, throughout this year is for the government to step up and fill in those cracks in the public health care system. So one way that they could be doing that is really supporting uh, community health centers, ensuring that doctors like we see in Shoreline, in, in in Sydney and Saanich, can work as teams with nurses, nurse practitioners, and the the provincial government, the Ministry of Health could be really looking at, we can provide the infrastructure just like we would do with schools, and then the health professionals can create their teams and be able to provide that neighbourhood healthcare centre that people should be able to, you know, you move into a new neighbourhood and your healthcare centre is there and you sign up and you're good to go.
0: One of the things that we heard from the health ministry yesterday is that this is a complaints-driven process, right? Somebody has to complain. The Medical Services Commission then investigates. Is that, in your opinion, is that the best way to approach this?
2: No, I think we should be proactively protecting public universal health care in our province. Uh, And, you know, again, if this is a complaints-driven process, we raised this in the House in February of this year. Uh, it's quite astonishing how long it's taken. But I would also say that the minister has a role to play in this. He is overseeing healthcare in this province, uh, and it, he, it really is on him to determine what is that vision for healthcare, and ask the question of why are there so many private companies stepping into healthcare delivery and putting these fees in front of accessing primary health.
0: Do you think there's more cases like this? That there are other situations like this out there?
2: Yeah, we know there are. Adam has also raised this. There's Shoal Medical Center in his riding that is charging
0: uh,
2: a fee to people. Um, There are uh, several of these uh, companies that have really put that uh, fee in front of accessing uh, primary care. And so it's not just TELUS. uh, And again, it's because the gaps in the public health care system are so significant that uh, companies are finding a way to, to fill those gaps.
0: So what should people do then? If they come across this, if, they, if their doctor tells them, listen, I'm closing my practice and I'm now moving to this type of clinic, but you have to pay this amount of money for access. What should our response be? What should a patient's response be at that point?
2: Well, I think that this is what the medical services commission has in their affidavit is patients who have complained to them about this Um but that it puts patients in a very, very difficult place. And that's what is in, in the filing from yesterday is that patients were told you are going to have to pay this fee to continue to see your doctor. And for a lot of people, $4,000 a year just really isn't an option.
0: Right. So you feel there should, we should be pushing back more if we come across that?
2: Yeah, we, sh- we absolutely should.
0: All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you,
2: Simi. One one last thing I just yep. want to make really clear. I, I know that some people are worried that this is TELUS, telus Health, um, the online telehealth program that doesn't cost anything that people are using to access a doctor. This isn't that. This is a right. in-person $4,000 a year subscription to seeing a doctor in a clinic.
0: Right. It's not virtual health. It is it's the, not the virtual actual person-to-person. Yeah. Person. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Appreciate your time. Okay. Okay, Simi. Take but- it. That's Sonia Fersonau BC Green Party leader, uh, talking about these TELUS health situations. She's absolutely right. It's not the virtual health option that they have there. This is the in-person. And you know what? I know from hearing from many of you uh, earlier this year that this is something that you have faced, that you have had your doctor perhaps switch over and say this is the amount of money they're going to charge now for some appointments. So, yeah, it did take a while, but the government is now saying they're going to put an end to this. They've, they're filing for an injunction, but we'll see what the next steps are if you want to weigh in simi at cknw.com this is mornings with simi jobless numbers are out this morning from statistics canada we know that overall the country saw a bit of a decline 5.1 was canada's jobless rate in november but what about bc well joining us now is Rebecca kailan the minister of jobs economic recovery and innovation hello good
3: morning simi thanks for having me
0: well thanks for being here so how did bc do
3: Well, BC continues to be a leader in the country. uh, As you highlighted, the uh, unemployment rate for Canada is 5.1%. But in BC, we're at 4.4%. So we continue to see the the strength in our economy uh, and outpacing the rest of the country. We did see a small decline in jobs this month. I think we lost about uh, roughly about 13,000 jobs, uh, mostly part-time jobs. Um, But, you know, we continue to see positive things across the economy. The, the big challenge that we know that's coming is we're starting to see early signs that the Bank of Canada's um, uh, interest rates increases to slow the economy down are starting to take effect. and. And so we're going to have to continue to make those investments to support people through uh, any challenging times that may come.
0: Right. So B.C. in October was 4.2% and 4.4% in November, as you pointed out there. So what happened in B.C.? Where did we see those job losses?
3: Well, we lost about 22,000 part-time jobs. Uh, We gained uh, about 8,000, just under 9,000 full-time jobs. So we, we saw a little bit of decline in tech, a little bit of decline in construction, um we saw a little bit of a decline in, in in uh healthcare as well, but we because this is a server, we we focus a little bit less on the healthcare numbers because we have more exact numbers within government and we know that we have thirty thousand more people working in healthcare uh after the pandemic than we did prior to. So but we continue to watch tech and and construction a little bit uh, decline in jobs. Of course we also gain jobs in accommodation and food and educational services. But overall, pretty flat numbers from last month. But when you're at 4.4%, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to make many more improvements from there.
0: Okay, so what are you looking ahead to then, especially with the holiday season? Usually there's more hiring around this time of year.
3: Yeah, but, you know, we, we know the Bank of Canada is taking aggressive measures to slow the economy down. And, and we've seen aggressive interest rates increase. Uh, and because of that, we're starting to see the impacts in our economy. Businesses. Because of interest rates going up, they're starting to you know hold back a little bit on their decision making on, on hiring people, uh, and, uh, and and so we're starting to see signs of that in the economy. Now on the positive side, Canada is doing you know fairly well compared to other G seven nations, but BC we're leading the country in employment amongst youth and leading the country in employment amongst women. And I think the investments we've been making in childcare and focusing on childcare has really unlocked more opportunities for particularly women to get back into the labor market. So so some positive things within the numbers that uh, that we're tracking here.
0: Okay, but heading into then, you know, December numbers and and looking ahead to 2023, what are you keeping a close eye on? What would you like to see change here?
3: Well, uh, you know, the Bank of Canada has got pretty uh, clear goal in mind and they're going to do whatever they think they can do to to slow down demand. And so we're going to we expect interest rates to continue to go up. We're going to watch to see what that impact might be. Uh, and we're going to continue to track uh, the numbers around investments in British Columbia, track, uh, you know, what's happening at our ports, the amount of uh, goods going through all the indicators we normally watch. But, you know, most economists are telling us that we're going to see next year slowed economic growth because of the interest rates going up. So that's something that we're watching closely and, But, you know, the main thing for us is we've been through many challenging times in the last few years. I don't need to tell your listeners that. Uh, And we're going to continue to support people through any challenging times that may come.
0: Are you worried, though, that the Bank of Canada is going to continue that path of increasing interest rates?
3: Well, you know, uh, everybody that uh, has a responsibility of economic recovery across the country is watching those interest rates uh, going up and, and hoping that we see a soft landing. But there's always a risk of uh, of a recession uh, that can have impacts on people. And so, uh, yes, uh, I'm a little worried about uh, where things are going, but I also know that we have a very resilient economy. Uh, many of the economists that we've spoken to have told us because of our diversity of our economy, we're going to be best positioned from any province in the country. So that gives me a lot of comfort. And again, we've been through tough times before. Uh, anything that comes in the future, we'll navigate through together.
0: All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning.
3: Thanks for having me, Simi. Take care.
0: You too. Ravi Kalan, who is BC's Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. So the November jobs numbers for BC, not as positive, a little bit of a dip there. So our uh, employ- unemployment rate sitting at 4.4%. We were 42 in October. Uh, it is challenging times. Uh, Alberta also saw that same kind of... Uh, you know um in decrease or increase in the rate i guess you could say uh, so yeah some challenging times out there but what will happen in 2023 especially if these interest rates keep rising certainly that's not good for bc's economy as we see there Found a way in simi at cknw.com This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of news this week, so this might have actually gone by you. And it's a rare situation here in BC that BC's public school teachers ratified a new three-year contract after reaching a deal with the province. Nearly 50,000 members of the BCTF were eligible to cast that vote. Union says the vote was 94% in favor. Joining us now to talk more about this is Clint Johnson, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Good morning. Good morning, Sammy. I feel like we can't say this enough, though, Clint, how how historic was this? It's not very often that a deal is just reached, everybody votes on it, and it seems like everybody's happy.
4: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a pretty neat accomplishment. It's not the norm, that's for sure, but uh, it's something that we're pretty happy about. I think our members are uh, pretty happy that they could get a deal and keep working in the classrooms with students and, uh, and just go back to work once they ratified it, yeah.
0: Okay, so what does this deal mean for teachers?
4: Um, well, the deal means um, a, a decent pay increase, which is probably a thing that people most notice first. But um, it means a decent pay increase. It means our teachers are going to kind of get out of that bottom uh, bottom category of teachers across Canada that you've heard us talk about for years. Um, you know, we live in one of the most expensive provinces, and for a long time we've lingered in the lower part of teacher pay across Canada. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to get us up. Uh, around our colleagues across Canada, which is really good. It's going to help with uh, hopefully recruiting and attracting some teachers into D- D.C. Um, but it's also going to provide some other other things that the public won't be as uh, easily aware of, like uh, better PD funding, professional development funding. It's going to provide some improvements to maternity pregnancy leave for those members who take that and uh, some other stuff like that, obviously some benefits improvements.
0: Okay, and, and like that to, okay. At what? How is the recruitment going? I know that you know we had talked in the past in the last year or so with the BCTF on the issue of the fact that there were so many teachers that were still needed in some areas. Is there still a shortage?
4: Oh yeah, there's still a severe shortage, and I, I think that's probably the part that uh, the part that links in with what we weren't able to achieve in this deal, unfortunately, which is some working conditions improvements. Um, you know, the workload that a lot of our teachers are under is is too much, frankly um and we we're hoping to improve those conditions but we couldn't do that this round but when you add in the fact that there's a really severe teacher shortage right now i mean you've got districts in the Fraser Valley like the one i'm from in Chilliwack advertising for uncertified individuals to teach um so i think that tells you how many teachers we're missing in the province and and we're hoping in between rounds that we're going to talk to government about what they can do to help recruit and retain teachers because there's things they can do away from the, the contract, away from the bargaining table, but um, we certainly need to address it because it's a severe shortage still.
0: Okay, and what kind of things would you like to see get done here?
4: Well, I think it's a, it's a lot of what you've heard us talk about before. Um, you know, it's no secret that housing is an issue, but people sometimes think that's a metrocentric cost of housing issue, and, and that's certainly one part of it. But when you get into some of the other areas of the province, there's just no housing available and then therefore if it is it's still really expensive so um, trying to get people to go out to some of the remote and rural areas when there's no housing available or the housing is unaffordable um, means that those areas are really suffering so you know help with housing either providing it or supporting uh the public service employees getting it um things like student loan forgiveness you know we've seen uh things that will attract teachers if they go to certain regions of the province perhaps where they get some student loans forgiven we saw some creativity around drawing doctors in the office, and so we'd just like to see that same creativity and, and problem solving apply to our sector.
0: Okay, what is the length of this deal?
4: The deal's three years, uh so it goes to June thirtieth, twenty twenty five.
0: Okay, so that's that's good, right? So parents can expect yep. some calmness, some labor calmness in the schools then?
4: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, as you said, right off the top, it is good news that way. It's good for our members, it's good for the parents, it's good for the students. Um, So there'll be some labour calmness for sure. We'll, of course, start uh, looking at planning for the next round in about a year and a half. Um, But for students and parents, yeah, it'll be a few years of uh, calm in the school system.
0: You know what, they'll take it. Uh, Clint, thank you so much for that.
4: Thank you,
0: Cindy. Clint Johnson is president of the BC Teachers Federation. Uh, I know there's a lot of news this week. You may have missed this one, but it is significant, especially when you look at BC's history and how contentious the relationship has been between the BCTF and the government at times. Uh, Not only did they reach a deal you know, easy peasy. Well, not easy peasy, I'm sure, but they reached a deal and then they voted on it. And this week they released the results of that 94% voting in favor. So it has been ratified. So if you uh, always worried about that, listen, there'll be labor peace among teachers in the government for the next three years. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, Canada may be out of it, but there are still lots of teams ready for people to support them in the World Cup. And we know that leading into this, there was a lot of anticipation this would mean good things for the local pubs and restaurants, for people to gather and maybe watch some of those games. So we thought, let's check in and see how that's going. Joining us now is Jeff Guignard, president of ABLE BC. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Has the World Cup been good to bars and pubs?
5: Well, it's been sort of a slow and steady uh, increase in sales over the past few weeks. Uh, I, I don't think it's been um, you know, the massive boom for everybody that we kind of hoped it was. There's been a bit of headwinds for uh, for industry dealing with staff and trying to get folks out, and not being able to sell liquor earlier in the day has certainly had impact. But overall, we're hearing it's um, best case scenario about a 10% bump for some folks, which is pretty good.
0: That's pretty good. Was there any difference, like when Canada was playing? Did it get really busy?
5: Yeah, there's a, definitely some fan favorites out there for uh, Canada and when England is playing or when Spain is playing, we notice uh, an uptick in that. And as we're getting into the round of 16, we anticipate more folks are going to come out. Uh, what we're finding, though, from our perspective, it's um, you don't see a lot of places that are opening for the really early ones. Some of them have put in some breakfast specials, which has been fun. But we're finding, you know, a lot of bars we close at midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. Uh, we're already in the middle of labor shortage, so it's difficult to get staff to come out and work at, at six a.m. or something like that. If we open, say, four hours earlier than normal, uh, then we, we've got to find staff to fill those those extra four hours later in the day, and that that's been a bit of a challenge for, well, us for I'm sure.
0: I'm guessing that people who work in that industry to begin with, they're not exactly morning people.
5: <laughs> well, even if you are a morning person, we, we try and train that out of you uh, in the <laughs> bar industry, and as we uh, we need you to work later at night. I mean. You know, even when the bar closes at you know one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, you know, staff still have work to do and still have to cash out and clean up, and it, it takes another hour or so plus time to get home. So, yeah, you end up staying out kind of late. But overall, it's it's been um, it's been positive, and it hasn't been as, as massive as we would hoped. One of the things we're hearing from industry a bit, too, and that they're, that they're hearing from the customers is, you know, it's been a tough couple of years, not just for the industry, but for a lot of British Columbians. I mean, some people have been out of work and there's not a lot of extra disposable income to go out and watch these games, particularly heading into the holiday season, which you can totally understand.
0: Yes, I can understand that. Have you noticed in the past, Jeff, like do, do tournaments like this, like the World Cup, big sporting contests, do they make a difference when it comes to people showing up and, and spending money?
5: Yeah, typically they do. Now, you have to remember FIFA is massive, right? I mean, it is the single largest sporting event on the planet for spectators. I mean, the Olympics are great, uh, you know, and, and the Stanley Cup Finals are always great, but FIFA's always had a massive impact for us. But um, we're finding is it's just not a lot of interest in coming to the super early games. Uh, we're getting a bump in some places, but not as much as we, we kind of would hope in some ways. Um, but there is sort of, I would say, you know, about a ten percent bump across the industry for it. In in most places, and, and FIFA is very popular. And, but I find that one of the challenges we're hearing sometimes too is is people don't necessarily want to go out and celebrate too much. But Qatar getting a lot of bad press right now, it's it's adding something strange to the equation, a bit of downward pressure on demand for consumers. But uh, overall, it seems like yeah, it's something that people are hearing directly from uh, from their customers as well, which which is an interesting discussion to be having with patrons at you know eight a.m.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay, but what about the holiday season overall here? Normally, you know, people go out, they enjoy uh, drinks mm-hmm. with coworkers or friends heading into the holidays. How has that been?
5: Yeah, no, that is that's going really well. So this is the first holiday season of the past three years. It feels like I mean, the holiday season again. If you don't have your, your reservations for New Year's Eve or for your holiday celebrations or work parties or anything, you, you need to get on that right away. Places are booking up, event spaces are booking up, private rooms are booking up, and uh, we're seeing a lot of buyouts and corporate parties returning. So all that's very exciting. And we're hoping this is going to be the best holiday season of the past several years because industry absolutely needs it. I mean, you've heard me say it before, but you know the hospitality industry across Canada and here in BC have been losing money or breaking even for the past couple of years. So getting some revenue back in now and having a chance to pay down some of the debt that folks took on just to make it this far is really important for us. Uh, but we're seeing customers definitely want to come out and have a good time this holiday season. So we're looking forward to that.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the staffing shortages, though. Is that persisting? Is there still challenges around that?
5: Yeah, it's getting better, uh, but it's still a challenge. So the hospitality industry and liquor industry, BC, is is, a, is the fourth largest private sector employer, but nearly 200,000 people work in this industry. Uh, think about six months ago, we were probably about 30,000 workers short Uh, We're closer to about 17,000 workers for short, so we're moving in the right direction, and we're seeing more and more people come back to the workforce. But we are still seeing a shortage of labor, and that's impacting our ability to open earlier. Or sometimes, and even one of my board of directors of ABLE was telling me this the other day, uh, that he has to shut down certain sections of his pub just to avoid his kitchen getting slammed and overworked because they don't have enough staff back there. So the shortages we're still seeing are definitely in kitchen staff, Uh, And even in sometimes in management staff. So as we head into the busy holiday season, we're doing everything we can to put our best foot forward. But, you know, please be patient if it takes a bit longer sometimes or if we're not quite back to the level of service that you would have expected a few years ago.
0: Are people, are they understanding? I I feel like people are, right? Like as customers, it's like, no, no, we understand that everybody is short-staffed.
5: Yeah, I, I think it's because it's not just the hospitality industry. It, it's everywhere. I mean, you, you go to a, a clothing store in a mall, and you, it's hard to find somebody sometimes. I mean, even even those industries are experiencing staff shortages. Overall, I think customers have reacted pretty well. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, we do have to remind patrons that you know, the reason it's taking a bit longer is because we're short-staffed, and, you know, the, you, you can understand people's frustrations around that, but they're hearing it often enough that I, I know people believe it, and they've heard us talking about it publicly enough. Um, so it, it's not a, it's not as challenging as it was say during the pandemic when people were frustrated around the rules or something like that. It's just now just more the normal flow of business.
0: Right. I was also wondering too, Jeff. Are people still opening up new places? Like, is there still that drive for new concepts, new restaurants, new bars?
5: Yeah, we're actually seeing that is starting again. So during the pandemic, obviously nobody was was opening anything, right? During, during twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one, and even the first half of this year, it was very slow getting going, but. Um, you know, I, I live in downtown Vancouver and there's been a lot of empty storefronts or yeah. uh, empty um, establishments that used to be quite popular. But some of those we're starting to hear about deals are going in place again. Uh, I've heard about a number of liquor license establishments opening up. There's applications going into the, the branch where we, uh, we get your liquor licenses from. So it's, you can see some of those spaces that were maybe vacated by a business that didn't make it through uh, is now some, some new entrepreneur going in there. Uh, which I always find very exciting and I think is a really positive sign. Um, and then you can see, too, some folks, maybe during 2020, they had been wanting to open a place or looking at it. Conditions changed, so they, they kind of pulled that off the board for a while and, and held on to the capital, and now they're investing back in the industry. So that, that's a good sign, and that's you know something we did always know is going to happen. The hospitality industry is remarkably resilient, and it's something that humans have been doing for thousands of years, right? So we do know industry is going to rebound. It's just going to take some time.
0: All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for the update.
5: It was my pleasure. Have a great day.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.